It probably seems like we should be focusing on the birth of Christ in our message today because of the season and the songs we're singing. We are going to finish up our look at the book of Job today. And so we'll finish that up today, and then uh, our plan is the next couple of Sundays to focus on the birth of Christ and our messages. I'll be preaching next Sunday and Dr. Dan on Christmas Day, which will be a very, very special day for those who are here uh, to have, have the Lord's Day, Christmas Day, all together and to celebrate the birth of Christ. So today we are in the book of Job. Stephen Lawson has a commentary on Job, and he relates this story. A man by the name of Timothy Dwight was a brilliant student. In fact, by the time he was 11 years old, he had learned, had a working knowledge of Latin and Greek. He entered Yale College at the age of 13 and graduated at the age of 17. And he was an avid student. That was his obsession. He just studied his brains out. But he did so to the point that he lived an unhealthy life. He neglected sleep, and he didn't eat right, he didn't exercise, he was just always poring over the books. And so out of that, he developed, Timothy Dwight developed a life-threatening illness, and he never fully recovered from that. In fact, one of the effects was that he was nearly blind. When the American Revolutionary War began, Dwight became chaplain to the Continental Army, So he he began getting involved in ministry. And then he began pastoring a church in Greenfield, Connecticut. And in that church, he he taught against the influence of a, a false view of God in that day, which was called deism. And then in 1795, after he'd been chaplain and then pastor, he was called back to Yale College to serve as president. And... Uh, Stephen Lawson in his commentary describes it this way. He says, for Timothy Dwight, this would be his life-defining crucible. And in his strategic role as president, he preached the word. And as he preached the word, he called the students to turn to Christ. And after seven years, Lawson describes it this way. He says, the spirit of God moved, revival broke out. One-third of the student body came to Christ, and many began spreading the gospel around that region. And that led to what is now called the Second Great Awakening here in America. And Lawson concludes this way. He says, life's great tragedies are designed to be a preparation for future blessings. Life's great tragedies are designed to be a preparation for future blessings. As we have learned together from the story of Job, we've seen a similar process in his life. Job's suffering and pain became a life-defining crucible that led to God receiving glory through Job's life and in the end, an outpouring of the blessing of God in Job's life. We have considered this book and this story of Job from these perspectives. We have seen the man, we've seen the adversary, the test, the pain, the friends, the question, the answer, and today we come to the end here in Job chapter 42. We're in Job 42. 
Now, we can't say that the outcome of your and my hardship and suffering and pain that we experience will come to a nice, neat storybook conclusion like it seems that Job's does. But there is a pattern here for us. We can learn from this and see that when we endure, when we just endure through the hardest of times and when we embrace God's grand purpose for us through them, and as we grow through our trials, we will experience in some form, in some degree, similarities to the outcome that Job experienced. So we're going to look at the end of Job's suffering, and by end, we're referring to not just the conclusion, but really the consummation of God's purpose at work in Job's life, and see this in three parts. Look with me at Job chapter 42, and let me just read verses 7 and 8 to get us started. Job 42, verses 7 and 8. They say, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, And offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So the end of Job's life, the outcome of Job's life-defining crucible and the outcome of our suffering and pain can include, first of all, vindication. Vindication. God communicated to Job and to his friends that Job's friends did not speak what was true. God said, you did not understand and you did not state what is true and correct about me, God said, but that Job did. He says at the end of verse 8, Job did understand, Job did convey what was true and what was right. There was a lot of talking that went on. In fact, as you read through the book of Job, most of the book really is this, these comments by the, the friends of Job and Job's response to them. And the essence of what Job's friends were saying was, God is punishing you. Job, for doing something wrong, for doing something sinful. And and they claimed to know this with certainty, but they didn't really understand the truth, did they? And people do this sometimes, right? They they make statements, they, they make pronouncements, they make claims, they pass judgments and state them with great confidence. And it's like, wow, they must know what they're talking about. And I have a little saying that I've developed in my thinking as I've heard people do this, and sometimes I've had it even directed at me uh, when somebody says, oh, this, you know, it's this way or it's that way or you did this. And it turns into really an accusation in a sense. I have this little saying, and the saying is this. You ready? This is profound. Just because you say something doesn't mean it's right. Just because somebody makes this bold statement, this, this pronouncement, this proclamation, you know, passes judgment, this is the conclusion, and makes this confident statement, doesn't mean it's right. Whether they say it to you in person or you read it someplace, 
Just because somebody says it does not mean that it's right. People may be confident, but they may not be right. And that's how it was with Job's friends, wasn't it? So it's important for us to listen to God, to listen to him, not just how we perceive our circumstances, not even to listen to ourselves sometimes and how we interpret our circumstances or how other people interpret our circumstances or how people discern what they think our response is or what our heart is. So we have to be careful what we listen to and how we respond to that. Job's judgment of himself was correct in that he had not done anything to bring God's punishment on him. So the friends were wrong, and he was right. You know, it is very painful. We've talked about painful circumstances, but but sometimes it's just painful when somebody misunderstands you, isn't it? When they misjudge you, when they misunderstand you and, and even misrepresent you to others. So people form conclusions about you and your actions and your thoughts, and then they talk about that to somebody else, and that can be very painful. Job is an example of enduring. He, he, just, he just took it, didn't he? Now, he responded, but he persevered through it all. And I think there's a great lesson there. Entrust your reputation to God. Entrust your reputation to God. He will set things right in his way, in his time. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. And here we see God is exercising his wrath against those friends. God will do that if and when he chooses. God will, in his way and in his time, vindicate you if that's what is needed. He will correct people's perception of you if that's what's needed. Now, it may happen within weeks, months, years. It may happen in this lifetime. Or that vindication may not happen until we stand before Jesus at what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And everything's brought out into the open and everyone's actions and words and thoughts are evaluated by the Lord who sees and knows all. And our hearts, our motives, our responses, our words, as well as those who might even speak or do hurtful things toward us or misunderstand or misrepresent us will be brought out into the open and judged by Christ. And we may just have to wait until then for some of those things to be sorted out. And there are some experiences I've had with individuals where I've just reached a point where it's like, you know what, I've tried to resolve this, I've tried to correct this, I've tried to get to a place of of mutual understanding with this person, but it's just not happening. I've just had to say, you know what, I'm going to entrust that to the Lord. If he wants it to be resolved, he can make it happen. Maybe it'll just be sorted out at the judgment seat of Christ. And I have to be okay with that. So be patient. And even now, if you are a believer, it's good, important to understand, if you are in Christ, if you're saved, that the hardships that come are not punishment for your sin. Jesus Christ took your punishment for you. He is, God is performing his purging and purifying work in your life. And sometimes there is what what the Bible calls chastening, where God is disciplining us to change us. But it's not punitive. It's not punishment. It is corrective. It is redemptive. It is purifying and purging. And God does this many times through suffering and pain to make us more like his son. 
and to forge in us character that makes us more capable of representing him and serving him. So the outcome of Job's suffering and pain included vindication, and you and I may experience that as well. The outcome of our difficult experiences may also include reconciliation. And we see reconciliation here described in verses 8 and 9. Let me read them for us. So reading again verse 8, Now therefore take for yourselves, he says to the friends, seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you've not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. Now, God is really turning the screws on Job's friends, isn't he? I mean, he is really challenging them, really confronting them with what they had done. To the point that he is requiring them to bring sacrifices. A burnt offering was the standard offering to atone for sin. So what this, this is implying that these individuals had sinned, And they had sinned against God, but also the fact that they're bringing it to do this in the presence of Job is indicating they had also sinned against Job. And God is calling them to to make this sacrifice to atone for sin. And, And this, again, tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us that people do sin during times of suffering and pain. Sometimes it is the person who's suffering. We we might sin in our response toward God or toward other people. Here it's the friends, and that is sometimes the case as well, isn't it? The friends had sinned against God, and they had sinned against Job, and and God held them accountable. And we also see from this that for sin to be forgiven, there must be a sacrifice. For sin to be forgiven, there must be a sacrifice. And before Jesus came, God required animal sacrifices without the shedding of blood. The scriptures say there is no remission of sins. Why Why the shedding of blood? Because it signifies that the life of one is being presented in exchange for the life of another. And the life's blood is being poured out. It is a blood sacrifice. And one creature's life is being presented, we might say being exchanged for the life of another because sin requires death, right? The wages of sin is death. So a blood sacrifice indicates the offering of one life in exchange for another and the burnt offering indicates that it was completely consumed. So there's, there's, it's burned up. And in in the way that the scriptures describe the offerings made to God, it describes these offerings as a sweet-smelling savor, a sweet aroma to God. Meaning that it pleased God. This pleases God. So the blood sacrifice, the life of one for the life of another, the burnt offering completely consumed and pleasing to God. But something else about the sacrifices we know from the Old Testament is that they were repeated over and over and over again. In fact, We would say they were endless in the sense of the Old Testament perspective. Why? Because they did not completely satisfy the requirements of justice. Now, aren't you thankful that we have a different perspective today? 
Christ came. Christ came. The writer of Hebrews says, As high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. And he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So as these friends made sacrifices to God in order to be reconciled to God and to Job, we know from our perspective that it was partial, that it was insufficient, it was inadequate. It was only a picture of what was to come. It only reminded them that there was no no permanent, no perfect sacrifice for them, but Jesus came, the one would come who would be that perfect sacrifice, and now we enjoy the blessing of knowing who it is and knowing exactly what he did. And how much more, Hebrews 9.14 continues, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the purpose of reconciliation, isn't it? to cleanse us and cleanse our consciences and make us, as we would describe it, right with God, make us right with God, reconcile us to God, make us right with God, so that we can go on serving him, so that we can live our lives for him. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Hebrews goes on in chapter 10, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those are beautiful truths here in the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10. By one offering. He has perfected forever. He has made, if you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ, you've been saved. He made you perfect in the sense that that he made you presentable to God so that you can be reconciled to God. And you are being sanctified. You are in the process of being purified as well. So, if you sin against God, if you, if you sin against God, and in this case, in the midst of suffering and pain, Or if you find yourself as a person who has viewed or judged or represented somebody else who's going through suffering and pain, and you've done that in a wrong way, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? And sometimes we look around, look back, and just say, I've blown it. I've blown it in how I've responded to God and to my circumstances and what he's allowing in my life. I've blown it in how I've viewed other people and how I've talked about them, maybe even said things to them. And I realize it's wrong and it's sin. And God, I'm confessing it to you. And brother, sister, I'm confessing it to you. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? And the blessing is because of Christ, yes, you can be forgiven. We can accept God's forgiveness. We can receive God's forgiveness. And we can extend forgiveness to others. And we can, can receive forgiveness from, other, from others because of Christ. So suffering and pain can actually lead to reconciliation to God. This is interesting. One of the surprising ways that God uses hardship is to draw people to himself. Another helpful resource is a book by... Pastor Tim Keller, and his title, honestly, um, 
telling the truth here, honestly, I didn't steal my title from him. Somewhere along the way, these kind of overlapped, okay? So the title of his book is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. You can hear the similarity, and there's a lot of similarity there, and it contains very helpful and profound thoughts on this topic. And and as a pastor, Tim Keller says in, in that book, he says, when I entered ministry, I realized many people resist and reject God because of affliction and suffering. And the question they ask is, how could a good God, a just God, a loving God, allow misery, depravity, pain, and anguish to this level? And listen to what he says. Doubts in the mind can grow along with pain in the heart. When you experience pain, it can produce doubt about the existence of God, about the the power and sovereignty of God, about the, the goodness and the grace of God, right? But then Keller goes on to make this observation. He says, actually, many people find God through affliction and suffering. Troubled times awaken them out of their haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency into a serious search for the divine. Because when suffering and pain come upon us, we see, we finally see that not only are we not in control of our lives, but we never were. We never were. And God can use the hardship in people's lives who don't know God or who have strayed from God to draw them to himself. Now, we have to be careful about preaching to hurting people, right? But let me tell you why this is happening and you need to hear this. We should be careful about how we approach that. But, you can pray for those people. Now let's think about, let's think outside yourselves now. Let's think to the people around you. Let's think to the people in your family you're going to see here in a few weeks maybe. Let's think about the people that live around you. Let's think about the people that, that, that move right around this, this church building, this community. And there are people who are hurting, and some of them you become aware of. And you can just, even, even with somebody in a store, in a five-minute conversation, all of a sudden you find about, out about how this person is hurting. You can pray for God to use the suffering and pain in that person's life to cause them to search and to want to know of God. So pray, with, pray, pray for people, converse with those people, listen to those people, and yes, be ready to speak of Christ. And when you are the one who is hurting, let Christ-like character and let the hope that you have in Christ shine out of your fractured life. The treasure that we have in these earthen vessels, let it shine out of the brokenness of your life so others can see in your life the reality of God. The seasons of suffering in your life may be God's way of giving you a painful but fruitful ministry of reconciliation, of helping others see There is a God. He is good. And your hope is in him. As Paul said, if we are afflicted, Paul said, if we are afflicted, he said, it is for your consolation and salvation. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 6. And that may be the case for you. Your affliction may be for somebody else's consolation and even their 
salvation. God could use what's happening to you to reach them with the hope of the gospel. And I would say this on a very personal level for those of you in this church. God is doing something remarkable here. The extent, the degree of the suffering and pain that has been experienced by people in this congregation is unusual over the past couple of years, let's say. And I just want to—I just want to frame it. I want us to think of it that way. God must be doing something remarkable because of what who we know Him to be, and who you know each other to be, and I am coming to know you to be the kind of people that you are. I mean. God just has to be at work. He has to be to allow what's happening. And so so the question then then is, what is that? And you, as you respond, as you grow, as you trust, as you allow Christ's likeness to shine out and through that brokenness, there are people around you, whether you realize it or not, who are observing. And some of them are people who are far from God, far from God. And God very well maybe using you to have a ministry of reconciliation with them. And it's hard. It's not the way that you would choose. And you do have to, you do have to get close to people. It is necessary to spend time with those people. They need to know you. They need to see your life. They need to hear your thoughts so that they can ask that question Peter talks about. Hmm, what is the reason for the hope? that lies in you and give you an opportunity to answer. Now, just another observation here from from verse 8. This is interesting. As you look at verse 8 here, he says uh, about halfway through the verse, my servant Job shall pray for you. How do you think Job was feeling about those friends who just poured out misunderstanding and misrepresentation and misjudgment on him during the worst days of his life, he's probably ready for them to go home, right? What did God want him to do? Pray for them. Pray for them. We don't know exactly what Job was supposed to pray or how he was supposed to pray for them, but the the way it lines up in the context in connection with this offering... and the, the, the statement of God's wrath upon them, it, it must be like a prayer of intercession that God would spare them. That God would forgive them. So, so it seems that God is, is calling Job and expecting Job to, to, to pray that God would have mercy on them and spare them from his wrath and intercede for them. And in verse 10, it even, even seems that this was very important to God, so important that Job's intercession was a condition of his being restored. Verse 10, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Interesting, isn't it? So so God was giving Job some homework also, wasn't he? To pray for these individuals. It makes us think of Christ on the cross who prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We do know Jesus told us to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So, as hard as it may be, 
One of the best steps we can take when hurt by others is to pray for them. Pray what? Well, I think we can take from this, again, the implication here is that what Job was called to do was to, to intercede for them, that they would be right with God and they'd be spared the wrath of God. And so we, we can pray that for those who hurt us. Something in us wants payback, wants vengeance, wants retaliation, maybe just wants justice, which is not wrong. But we can pray for them to be right with God, can't we? We can pray for them to be reconciled to God. We can pray for God to be merciful to them and spare his wrath on them. Leighton Talbert has written, Beyond Suffering, Discovering the Message of Job, and listen to what he says. He says, There is no better therapy for a wounded or bitter spirit. So whether wounded or bitter, whether, whether just hurting because of what's happened or maybe even feeling that resentment, There is no better therapy for a wounded or bitter spirit toward those who have wronged you than praying for them. Praying for them. Is there someone you need to pray for? It's just coming to my mind as I'm thinking about it. Uh, My mother, Grandma Taylor, turned 100 a few weeks ago. And uh, I have, you know, the Bible of an older person that's walked with God is just so so precious, what a treasure, so many marks and notes, and there was a time when somebody who was was part of our family, uh, as I was growing up, did something that just wounded her so deeply, just hurt her really, really deeply, and not long ago, I'm, I'm going through the pages of her Bible, just, you know, just in kind of a nostalgic way. And I see names of family members in there, and I see the name of this person after the hurt had happened. I see the name of this person right there with them. She prayed for that person, prayed for that person, prayed for that person. That's got to be hard. And maybe there's somebody that you need to pray for. Pray that they will be reconciled to God. If you don't know what else to pray for, pray for God's mercy on them. Pray that they'll be reconciled to God. The end or the outcome that Job experienced, in some cases may parallel what you and I experience, or they may not. And there's one more outcome that we see here in, in the way that Job's experience concluded, and we do have to be careful with this one, that we don't, don't misunderstand it or misapply it. Look with me now, starting in, in verse 10, Job 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses... When he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then, all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first, Jemima. The name of the second, Keziah. The name of the third, Karen Hapak. 
In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. What we see in the end is restoration. Restoration. And, and think about this. Let's think about this from the perspective of all we know about how God deals with us. I'll say it this way. God doesn't just restore your, restore your stuff. He restores your soul, doesn't he? And, and what we see here is, is not so much the bounty of Job's blessing, but the character of the God who blessed him don't we? We can see characteristics of God's restorative work in our lives. First of all, God restores with grace. Grace is favor. It is free favor that we cannot earn. (coughs) It's ours because of the goodness of God and because of the sacrifice of Christ so that we can receive his favor, God's favor. The grace also is characterized by generosity, by abundance. And that's what we see here, isn't it? You see in verse 10, God gave. He didn't owe. Job did not demand or earn or merit. God gave to him, and he gave twice as much. He was under no obligation to bless Job at all, and especially not to bless Job to this degree, but he did. And that is not a reflection on Job. That's a reflection on God. And in verse 12, he he gave more. And in verse 14, these daughters as described as as uniquely and exceptionally beautiful. And that's just, that's just displaying the, the generosity and the graciousness of God in the way that he treated Job. And God treats us with grace. Now, I want to say this carefully. When God takes something away, we do end up with more. Maybe not materially, but more of what matters. Understanding of God. Christ-like character. The ability to minister to others. And praise and glory to God. He truly gives beauty for ashes. God restores through comfort. Verse 11. These friends, family and friends, came around him. And they consoled him and they comforted him. Now these were kind of fair weather friends, it seems. But they did show up. God, in his goodness, sent people to provide personal comfort and material provision And we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul describes God, we know that God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in every way that's needed, in every form that's needed, to the full extent that's needed because of who he is. He is the God of all comfort. And sometimes he does use people to do it. So when you go through hard times and people step in and they help and they provide and they encourage and they do things for you, I mean, just just thank God for them, right? And I know you do. But it's a good thing to just say, Lord, thank you for these people in my life. 
And then be the person who brings comfort to others. Be that family member. Be that friend who helps and, and cooks and carries and encourages and comforts. God restores through comfort. Thank God we have a comfort-giving God. And God restores to fullness. God restores to fullness. The very end, Job died old and full of years. The idea of this phrase is that he lived a complete life and he lived he lived a filled life. Filled with what? Just material abundance and family happiness. Well, there was a restoration of that, wasn't there? But it was more than that. His life was made more complete because of who he came to know his God to be. Who he understood his God to be. And how he grew through that. Again, I want to say this carefully. But I hope you'll, hope you'll reach out and grasp this. You may not get back what you lost. You may not get back who you lost in this life. But you will gain more than you ever had. Because of who our God is. And Paul prayed it this way in Ephesians 3 verse 19. He prayed that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that prayer is asking God to to pour into your life himself and that you would grow and progress and be filled with with godliness. Love for God, likeness to God, ministry for God. That you would be filled with godliness and that you would overflow with that godliness to the praise of his glory. And that can happen. And that's what God wants to happen. He restores us to fullness. When we started uh, this look at this man, I shared with you the New Testament comment that James makes, the comment that James makes in James chapter 5, verse 11. That's where I want to end. What I want to do is just ask you to to reflect on on this verse. You can look at it in your Bible. You can look at it on the screen. It's in your outline. If you want to look at it on there, just just reflect on this verse. I don't want you to, I know it's time to zip up your Bibles, but don't zip up your brain, okay? Stay with me. And just, just transition now in your mind, in your heart, into a prayerful reflection on this. And I want to talk through this, and I would like to ask you to pray through this. Just, just You can keep your eyes wide open and just, just listen, respond to God in your own heart to what James says. He says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I see a couple of actions in here for you to take. One is to endure. Put one foot in front of the other. Get up the next morning. Face the next day. Look to God. Walk forward in trust. And keep going. And to look. 
he says, he says we, we have seen the end. So that's what this whole series has been about, right? Seeing through suffering and pain. So to see, you need to look. So, so endure, and as you endure, take the other action step of looking. Look at your God. Look at his grand purpose. Look at what his word says. Look at the truths you know and the new truths or depths of truth that you come to know through your experience. And ask God to help you do that, even right now. Lord, help me to endure. And help me to look and to keep on looking at you and your grand purpose and what you're working in my life. What will God do? God will bless. We count them blessed to endure. Count is the idea of, of we calculate. In other words, even though we might not see it now, we, we put it down as if it's already happened. It's true, it's going to happen. God is blessing and God will bless those who endure. So God is and will do good things. And God will accomplish his intended end. The end intended by the Lord. Again, that's the idea of not just a conclusion, but the consummation. The fulfillment of his purpose. So God, I trust you to bless me. And I'm good with whatever that blessing looks like. You know how to bless better than I know how to bless. So Lord, I leave it up to you to to determine and and to distribute whatever that blessing in my life is supposed to be. But I trust you that you're going to bless me. And Lord, I want you to accomplish your intended end in and through me. Not what I want to see as the outcome. Not what I wish would have been the outcome. But Lord, what you intend for the outcome. And what else will God do? He will show you that he is very compassionate and merciful. Lord, show me your compassion. Show me your mercy. Help me to notice it. Help me to recognize it. And I will praise you for your compassion and your mercy. Thank you for how you have shown me your compassion and your mercy in the past. And I know and I trust that you'll show me your compassion and your mercy in the future. What does Psalm 23 say? Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And it will. Father, we make this our prayer. And we trust you to work these things in our lives. And we thank you that because Jesus came, and because of all that we celebrate and all that we experience and enjoy around this season, we can enjoy the blessings of God and experience the end that you have in mind for us and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.